0: Welcome to the Goal Mission Sync Podcast. This week's episode features Andy Snoke with a message on Nehemiah.
1: I've been reading the book of Nehemiah. and There's a lot of spiritual applications and principles in the book of Nehemiah. And that revival that is true, that's that's truth for us today. It's lessons for us to learn today, the things that happened to Nehemiah. So who's Nehemiah? First off, the children of Israel, they're they're in captivity for 70 years. 70 years because of their sins. The Lord warned them that they're going to go into captivity. And then they're in captivity for 70 years. So think of that, 70, 70 years. There's people that were born in Babylon, that was Iraq. They were in captivity, working in Jerusalem, and so there's people that grew up there. There's someone that could be seventy years old that never, never stepped a foot in Jerusalem. That's all they knew was captivity. It's all they ever knew. But God promised that He would set those people free, and then He did. And then the decree was given, and they were set free. They went back to Jerusalem with Ezra and started to rebuild the temple. But then the walls need to be rebuilt. Now back then, that that means nothing to us today. But back then, if you wanted a city, you had to have walls. That was real important. If you didn't have walls, you weren't a city. You were Anybody could come and destroy you. So building the temple building the walls was a spiritual thing. But you weren't a city, you weren't anybody unless you had walls built around your city. You, you had no significance unless you had walls. Jerusalem had walls, but they'd been torn down before the captivity when Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed Jerusalem and took all these fine young men to Babylon. So now it's time to go back. So I guess one of the lessons we can learn is is this. God keeps his promises. Now think of that. There's people in Jerusalem. All they've seen is captivity. Captivity. And they're, they're thinking to themselves, you know, I keep hearing these stories and reading scriptures that we're going to go back to Jerusalem. We're going to be free someday. We're not going to be here anymore. We're going to go out. We're going to go somewhere. And God kept his promise. So I'm sure there's a lot of people who thought, you know, things will never change. Have you ever felt that way? You look around you. Things look kind of discouraging. Doesn't look like much is happening. But I want to tell you something. Just like with Nehemiah, God keeps His promises. God has His own timing and He keeps His promises. He has promised to set up a kingdom on this earth and it will begin with building a church on this earth. And God keeps His promises. He's not slapped keeping His promises. The other thing that kind of struck me is in God's timetable, it can seem like Nothing's happening for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And then boom, there's a decree that you're going back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. And then all of a sudden things happen quickly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But it takes a lot of preparation for that moment in time. Mm-hmm. And you have to be wondering the Bible is full of examples of people that God made promises to. And then when it came time to do something, they weren't ready for the promise. They were kind of, they were happy to live in Egypt. In fact, when Nehemiah and these decrees were given to go back to Jerusalem from Iraq, and Babylon at that time, Persia at that time, Pers- the Persia took over Babylon at this point. There's a lot of Jewish people 2,500 years ago that said, you know what? God promised we'd go back to Jerusalem, but I'm kind of happy right where I'm at. And they stayed there. Saddam Hussein, back in 1992, 1993, from time to time to make people happy, he would take Jewish people and other people and he'd hang them. He'd kill them, he'd hang them. Saddam Hussein in Iraq would hang Jews from time to time. First question you have is what on earth are Jewish people doing in Iraq, right? This is what happened. 2,500 years ago, their parents, the forefathers, went into captivity and when God said it's time to go home, some of them said, I think I'll just stay here. That's another lesson. The choices you make, you, it, they don't just affect you. They affect your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren. 2,500 years down the road, make right choices. You know, the Bible teaches this. Nobody lives to themselves. The decisions you make, you may you may say that, you know, my life, we, we joke a lot about Frank Sinatra, we used to, his signature song was I did it my way You know, I did it my way people talk about how great Frank Sinatra was because he he did it his way I'll tell you what you get up to heaven and you tell God well Lord I did it my way the Lord's going to say I don't have any room for you up here we don't have room for people to do things their way and you may say I did it my way but God is not looking for people to say I'm going to do it my way he's looking for people who are going to say Lord I want to do it your way my decisions have to be centered around what you want me to do, not the other way around. My will is yours. You've been my will. So there are a lot of people that did, that made decisions for themselves. When you make decisions, don't be selfish. We all think that if I make a decision, what does it matter? It's my life. I can do with it what I want. It does make a difference. It affects generations for 2,500 years. People were affected by decisions people made 2,500 years ago in the book of Nehemiah. So anyway, Nehemiah, Nehemiah is a tremendous man. He's going to be involved in one of the greatest revivals at that time. He's going to come out of the Persian Empire. He's going to go back to Jerusalem and help them build these walls. Now, Nehemiah, he's not a priest. He's not a Pentecostal preacher. He's not an evangelist. Uh, He's not a singer. He's not a writer. The book of Nehemiah is written from his uh, diary. They think he kept a diary, and that's where we get the book of Nehemiah, his memoirs, we would call them today. He wasn't a writer. writer. He was an administrator. He was the cupbearer for the king. An ordinary, well, I shouldn't say ordinary. He had to be a very trusted person to be the cupbearer. And God didn't raise up a prophet. He didn't raise up a priest. He didn't raise up an evangelist. He raised up the cupbearer in Persia, a man that wasn't even a builder, to so go back to Jerusalem, and re- rebuild all of these walls around Jerusalem. Anybody know how long how how long it took him to do it? How, that's, that's a pretty big project. Think about it for a minute. Forty days. You're gonna go back to Jerusalem. What, what's that? Forty days. Twenty. Forty. 40 but close so look before before we get there that's pretty close he didn't have any cranes he had a bunch of people that were spread out all over the place he didn't want to work and the land with enemies all around him and he's got to build these walls he built it in 52 days he's not even a builder but so this guy had the power of god on him and if you do some reading and we we'll probably won't even get there you get to the last chapter, he's scolding the people for intermarrying uh, Jewish people, marrying people that didn't know the Lord, and they are warned not to do, do that. So he gets mad, and he starts. He grabs them, and he starts pulling their hair out. Now, can you imagine me coming here and say, Hey, I'm really upset with you people for this or for that, and I come out there and I start grabbing your hair and pulling it out? I mean, just get that image in your mind. That's how passionate Nehemiah was. Another place, I think it's the 13th chapter as well, maybe the 12th chapter. He's mad at him again and he warns him, you know, if I come out there in the street, I'm going to put my hands on you and it's not going to be pretty. This guy got physical. That's how much he believed in this revival of the work that he was doing. Now, his passion might have been a little misguided, but you gotta thank God for his passion. He believed in the job that God gave him to do. And the job that God gave you to do is pretty important. And we should I think we need a little bit of that passion. The passion that Nehemiah had. I don't mean that we go around pulling people's hair out, but we need some of that passion. You know, people talk about yeah, you know, just believe whatever you want. Everything's okay. You know, there's there's 63 different genders. It doesn't matter. You know, and this and that. Sometimes I think we've got to be passionate. No, there isn't. There's two, male and female. Nothing has changed. Male and female. I mean, if you don't think that there's no difference in the genders, and try to try to get your eggs from a rooster and your your milk from a from a bull. God made two genders for on purpose. So, nevertheless. Nehemiah was passionate, so let's start in the first chapter. Um, first, chapter here, uh, the words of Nehemiah. Now, it happened in the month of Cheslev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susha in the capital. This was in Persia. The Hanai, one of my brothers, came and certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped who had survived the exile, concerning Jerusalem they said to be the remnant that are in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and escapes are destroyed by fire. <laughs> we should pause there for just a minute. He's in Persia. Why is he in Persia? Babylon. Daniel saw, second chapter of Daniel, saw four world empires. God measured time by four world empires, and then he saw the kingdom of God. He saw Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Then he saw the Persian Empire, the Medes and the Persians, would come and swallow up Babylon, destroy them, uh, uh, incorporate them. And then he saw the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great, this young man that uh, took over the the known world and died at 34 years old after he conquered the known world. And after that he saw the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire, the most powerful, largest world empire in history who faded away after a thousand years. is still here, but just a remnant of what they were. Those four have come and gone. The last one, the revived Roman Empire, we know nothing about it. It comes up as ten nations, and, and we don't know what that means. Don't worry about it. But after that, he saw the kingdom of God coming and destroying all the kingdoms of the earth and filling the entire earth. So out of those four empires, how many have come and gone? Babylon, Persia, the Greeks... The Romans—they've all come and gone, haven't they? God's got a timetable; He's got a stopwatch, and at some point, just like the seventy years in captivity, then one day it's over. Someday, the the rule of the Gentile nations is going to come to an end, and it'll be the kingdom of God. I mean, and that's what this is all about. God is calling the people to be ready to enter the kingdom of God yeah. right now. So, anyway. He's in the Persian Empire. He's he's only seen the Persian Empire. So hears about the remnant. There's a remnant in Jerusalem and there's trouble and shame and the walls of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And then he says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and continued uh, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So he's disturbed that the empire is broken down here. That the walls are broken down and Jerusalem is a, its a shame that even though we go back, everything's destroyed. So here's another important thing. So the next several verses, he starts praying and seeking God and confessing his sins and confessing the sins of his people, and he totally identifies with his people. He says something like, uh, uh, "I and my father's house has sinned." and have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments and statutes. He doesn't say, Dear Lord, I'm confessing my sins. I cheated on my income tax, but at least I'm not like my fathers here. You know, I've been trying to be faithful. He didn't. He just identified with them. He, hey, Lord, I'm one of them. As as a people, as a race, as a people, we failed you. We have not been faithful. and there's something important about this prayer and identifying with His people. You know, and He's praying. And it it, it makes me wonder, Lord, maybe we need to do some more praying. Maybe you and I need to be praying for ourselves and for one another. Lord, please help us if we haven't been faithful. Help us all. Help us all to walk with You. Help us all to be more faithful. Help us to have the fire, help us to have the vision. See, he had a vision, we'll get into that later. Well, help us to have the vision for your kingdom to be faithful and to move forward with you. And then he gives a petition starting in verse 8. This is kind of an example of how to pray, but he gives a petition to God and even reminds God of the scriptures you know, what how you would bring us back. He confesses his sin and then he petitions, Lord, you. You promised that you would take care of us, and even though we've been unfaithful, and, and I'm putting my my words here, I'm, I'm reminding you what you said. It's okay to do that. Remind God what God has said. Remind God of God's promises. He says, "Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight like to fear your name." And give success, give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So nothing, nothing would happen in Jerusalem. The walls couldn't be rebuilt. These miracles couldn't happen until he prayed his prayer. Until he poured his heart out and said, Lord, before I can take another step, I don't even know, if, don't even know what the step is, but I, I, I ask you to forgive my sins and i reminding you of your promises here. We need help in Jerusalem. And as elders, I think of Nehemiah quite a bit often like like elders praying on behalf of your church. Lord, your church needs help. We need help. We need your hand. We need your hand. Okay, so next. He works for King Xerxes. He's a cupbearer. Now, to the young people, to all of us, that might sound like a dumb job. What's a cupbearer do? Well, a cupbearer, on one hand, on one hand, it's a pretty cool job. The king to bring the king's feast out. But you know, just in case someone poisoned the king, the cupbearer he eats all the food first or samples it. It's like going go to the Golden Corral and sampling the buffet to make sure it's okay. And they give him some wine, and they he tastes the wine to make sure it's not poison. You know, and uh, so it's a pretty important job. Now, I wonder if he—I don't know how people do this because we don't we don't drink—but when he. When he tasted the wine for the king, you know, did he do like these people do and say, It's got notes of rosewood and it's nutty and a little charcoal and I don't know. You know how people do that, but or did he just say, Yes, yeah, good. It's not poisonous, I don't know. But nevertheless, they were giving he would take the cup, the king would give him the cup, and he tasted, made sure it wasn't poisonous. And that was a real important job. That, that that was a job you could only give someone that the king really trusted. So In the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. That I was very much afraid. Why, Why do you think he was afraid? Anybody know? Why was he afraid? Real simple. Back then, the king had so much power, he wanted nothing but happy people around him. And if he had someone that was sad, it would make him sad, he could have you put to death. Can you imagine having so much power? So he was afraid. Then he then I was very much afraid. And then I said to the king, let the king live forever. Now here's what I think is so interesting. What he's going to do here is another lesson for us. Nehemiah, you're going to find starting here in the rest of the book, he says it like it is, and he's not politically correct. He is so politically incorrect. He says things that's going to make people upset, and he doesn't care. He doesn't care if he loses his own life. He's going to speak the truth, even as to Exertes the king. And you've got to admire that. Then it says the king, let the king live forever. Why should not why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and his gates have been destroyed by fire. He says it like it is. He didn't candy coat anything. He could have said, You know, I had a I had a, a migraine headache this morning. That's why I look sad. I'm sorry. I'll try to be better tomorrow. He didn't. This is why I'm sad. My homeland here, the gates are destroyed, but the place of my father's graves. And then the king said to him, What are you requesting? So here's the next lesson I think is good here. He has has an audience with the king. And he's going to ask largely. And my wife always tells me that. You have not because you ask not. Ask God for things. I don't mean that selfishly. But ask God for things. And I want to say this too. Ask largely. If he doesn't give to you largely, don't worry about that. But don't be afraid to ask largely. I remember when I was in high school, I I gave my heart to the Lord when I was like 16 years old. And I started asking God for good things. And I started asking God for a, a pretty Christian girlfriend. And I got one. (laughs) And I still got one. (laughs) I married her. But I decided to ask largely. And uh, so ask ask for good things largely. And trust God. Don't be afraid to ask. You may not get it, but don't be afraid to ask God. So he says, I said to the king, if it pleases the king and your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time period. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me of the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I, shall, that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon him. He asked for it all. All of it. Hey, king. Jerusalem—it's a long way from here—but you you control everything. It's all under your power. Write me some letters because you can't send a you can't send a fax, you can't, can't send a text message, you can't send an email. You—I got to take a piece of paper that says the king says, "Give this guy all the timber he wants. Help him out with anything he asks for." What, what a request! What a request! But he's asking largely. He's asking for the whole thing. Now, the other thing that gets me, and this is another key important truth here too, is He had vision. He had vision that if I'm going to go back and rebuild the city, I know what I need. I know what i got to do to do it. And you know, God will give vision to His people spiritually of the things that you need. And we need that vision. We need that vision in many things. We need that vision in building the church. God has builders in the church. We need that vision. And ask for those things that we need in the church. So I came to the governors of the province beyond the rivers, verse 9. Gave them the king's letters. And now the king has sent, has sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant heard this, it to them greatly, displeased him greatly, that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And this is what I get here, stopping right here. Another lesson. Immediately before, as he's going back in Jerusalem, he's getting his, getting his supplies. What happens? He's got enemies. Before he even starts, he's got enemies. And and I want to say this, and I say this kindly. When you do the Lord's work, we've been pretty blessed. But when you do the Lord's work, you're going to have enemies. It's going to happen. Now, living here in North America. We haven't. We've been blessed. We've been babied. We haven't had a lot of enemies. But if you're going to walk with God, don't be afraid when you have enemies that come. The enemies that say that what you're doing is foolish. You look like a bunch of idiots. It's foolish. You need to have this. You need to have that if you're going to serve the Lord. And you don't have those things. You're going to look foolish to people. You're going to have enemies. They're going to ridicule you. Did it slow down Nehemiah? No, did not slow him down one bit. Don't be afraid if you get enemies from time to time. We we like, we all like everybody to love us. That's the way King Xerxes was. You want everybody to love him. And if you didn't love him, he killed you. But we all like people to love us. Sometimes people won't love you, and it's okay if it's okay for the for the right reason. There's going to be times when you're going to have enemies. In India right now, there's a real moving of the Spirit. And we thank God for it. We have an area called Mysore. It's a heavy, radical Hindu area. And a number of people are coming to Christ. We have some churches that are being established. And in this particular area, they started meeting in person again. COVID got, just like here, got better and then it got worse again. They shut down churches again. But it got better and these people started meeting in their homes. The government of India has an official anti-conversion policy you can't convert people and uh hindus are coming to to christianity and that's illegal you can't convert people so what's happening the hindus in this area are breaking into these little home churches with bamboo sticks and they're beating people up Mm -hmm. they're hurting them they're breaking in and they're hurting them Mm -hmm. it's illegal to do that too the police stand outside and say, cross their arms, turn their backs, and say, if you want to go in there and beat up those Christians, you just go ahead and do it. They just turned a blind eye to it. That's our people. Mangalore, Mangalore hasn't had a lot of persecution, but they've been reaching out to people and on Zoom. And during this last year of COVID, of not being able to get out there, and like you do here worshiping on Zoom, they've added five families in a time of persecution in a time of COVID in one assembly. India is very anti-Christian. We have a little orphanage uh, in India, 65 children there. But out of that orphanage, we reach out and minister to many other churches in that area. In India, in order to support work in India, you have to have a thing called an FCRA account. It's, a, it's an account that you can put, uh, can receive foreign funds. That's how you support the work in India. So you, you send it to an FCRA account. If you don't have that account, you're out of luck. You can't work anymore. Well, we recently had to resubmit our paperwork for the FCRA account uh, three months ago. We haven't heard back yet. And be praying that this FCRA account is, is approved to continue the work that we're doing because if it's not approved, it stops like that. We can't send a penny over there. Mm-hmm. We can't support the orphans. can't support the men we're working with. You can't send money to India. Because of the anti-conversion policy, there's several Christian organizations and Muslim organizations that have set up little orphanages here and there all over the world, the country, to bring people to Christ and to help the poor and sick and dying. Last year in 2021, India, the Indian government, rejected 12,000 FCRA accounts because these are people that are converting other people. For a short period of time, for a period of time, Mother Teresa, the Missionaries of Charity, Mother Teresa's organization, the Catholic organization that goes to the streets of Calcutta and gets the people that are sick and dying, brings them in and cleans them up and feeds them so they can be clean and cared for before they die. She's done that work for 40, 50 years. She's dead now. They recently rejected her FCRA account. Now, recently they they changed that ruling and it's passed, fortunately. But if they can cancel Sister Teresa's SCRA account, they're saying we would rather have sick, dying, diseased, filthy children living on the streets and people dying than you Christians coming in and picking them up and cleaning them up because you lead them to Christ. Now... The Christians in India, they're a minority, about 2%, 3% of the entire population is Christian out of India. However, that's more people than there are in the country of Canada, you know, because they have 1.1 billion people. But nevertheless, in India, they have enemies. They have enemies everywhere. They have enemies. You and I have been blessed, just like Nehemiah. He goes back to Jerusalem and he just recognizes, I'm going to have some enemies. And the reason I'm saying that, we're blessed and, and and you may not know it but the way things are going in the United States I'm not a conspiracy theory person I don't mean that you've got a lot of enemies You know, Christians, a lot of people call us terrorists we're the new terrorists Christians, people that believe in some of the things that we believe in that, you know, a, a good education that uh, there's only two genders and you go through the list there's a lot of people who say that you're a terrorist nowadays things are changing we don't have enemies like they do in India. But see, even as Nehemiah went to Jerusalem, he recognized he's going to have some enemies. And when that happens, you don't have to fight them. You just need wisdom from God, as we'll read in Nehemiah. But recognize that you do have enemies here. I'll just go a little bit further here. And we're not getting very far. So he gets to Jerusalem. So I went to Jerusalem, the next part, verse 11. I was there three days. Then I rose on the night, I and a few men with me, I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal uh, with me but the one in which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate and the dragon spring, spring into the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and he lists all the lists all the places he was doing. Verse sixteen. And the, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were there uh, to do the work. So he goes out by night. And I, I like this. Is there's a lesson there. He doesn't tell anybody what he's doing yet. He's surveying the work. This is what needs to be done. It's all in his mind. It's a vision that's developing in his mind and heart that God has given him. But he doesn't just start blurting out everything. And sometimes as elders and and ministries, God will give you a vision and sometimes the first thing you have to do is just assess the damage. Just assess what's going on before you even do anything. Think about it. Assess the picture. And ask God for wisdom. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with gates burned? Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem. So now he's now he's bringing them together that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words of the king he had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So now he's shared it with other people. And now the Jewish people that he's speaking to—they're saying, "Okay, now we, now we understand. You're right. We got to get this work done. We'd like to help you out." I and mean, that's how God works. God isn't calling superstars; He's calling leaders and shepherds. But the work is done by everybody. Someone had to have a vision. Someone had to give direction, like in Ephesians four eleven. But it took the work of everybody. And now he's engaging. All of Jerusalem to come and rebuild these walls. We and and the work that God is doing today, everybody's got a job to do. Whatever your ministry is, that's the job that God has given you to do. Uh, then I said uh so and I said to them, You see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and so forth. And then it goes verse uh what are we uh, so they strengthen the hands for the good work, and then verse 19, and then immediately again Sanballat the Hornite, and Tobiah and the Ammonite and Geshem the heir of it. his enemies hear of it and the first thing they do they jeered us and despised us saying what is this thing that they're doing are you rebelling against the king then our replied to them the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem well what's he doing his enemies are saying, you, you you, guys are idiots. What you're doing, it's, you're just, I mean, you're going to find out later they're going to anymore. It's just foolish, the ideas you have in your head. And he says here, you know, God, he says, he doesn't pull any punches he might. He's not politically politically correct him. He says, the God of heaven, he will make us prosper. And we can say tonight, the work that God has given us to do, no matter how... Small you feel or insignificant. God will make us prosper in His work. If it's His work, He will make it prosper. Don't look at the things around you. Nehemiah didn't look around to see everything just destroyed. It's just, it's just hopeless. Why even start? Instead, He looked at this work and said, okay, this is what we need to do here. And the God of heaven, He will make us prosper. And we, his servants, we're going to rise and we're going to build. But then he says to, to his enemy here, that you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Um, what I like about that is, once again, he's just saying it the way it is. He's saying, Hey, brother, you're my enemy. You're not my friend. You're not my brother. You're not a Jew working with us. God has not called you to do this work. You're an enemy. You've got no portion of this. He called it the way it was. Sometimes, sometimes you've got to call it the way it is. For instance, how many ways are there to heaven? Are there 10 different ways to heaven? Are there 20 different ways to heaven? There's only one way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto my Father but by me. Jesus said He's the door to heaven. There's only one way to heaven. I... I, heard, I, have, I didn't read this. I heard a quote from one of the richest men in the world. He's in the top ten. I won't say his name. Everybody knows him. And he said something. And he's a good man. He's living multiple billions to charity. Multiple billions. He's a good man. And he said something to this effect. I'm going to get it wrong. But he, said, he said, One thing that I'm happy for with all my riches, at least it's easy to get into heaven. So think about that for a minute this is a good man and he's doing good work giving his billions away that he can't take to the grave and he says one thing I've decided is because of my riches this is an easy way to get into heaven how, how much money does it cost to get into heaven? Zero Having your name written down in the book of life is pretty simple. It's accepting Jesus into your heart. There's only one way into heaven. You can give billions for good causes. That is not what gets you into heaven. But anyway, the point I was getting at, Nehemiah, he's saying it the way it is. Sometimes we, me, not to offend people, but maybe we need to be uh, not as careful and not as afraid to say things the way it is pointing people to heaven pointing people to the right thing, doing the right thing and not being afraid to say no, that's not right this is what the Bible says this is what God says so we're in the third chapter of Nehemiah, so we're studying Nehemiah, and it's funny how God works, we were in a little prayer meeting back there and Roland said, I, I wondered if I mean, even Jerry talked about what to talk about tonight because we talked about that last week. <laughs> and we talked about it last week in our, our service, <laughs> Nehemiah, as well as last night. It's God's mind. Nehemiah, and, and uh, I'll try not to run into tangents. I run into a lot of tangents as we go on here. But Nehemiah is an example of building the walls of Jerusalem in preparation for the kingdom of God And there's just so much here that applies to us uh, today. So we're going to try to stay with some of that. So we're going to start in the third chapter here. And we're just going to touch on lessons. So Nehemiah has a, he's got this passion in in his heart. He's got a job to do. God commissioned him to do a job. Now, it's a good thing. He's incapable of doing it. But yet he looks to God and says, you know, Lord, you told me to, we need to build these walls here and you gave me favor. I know you're going to, you are going to get it done. And I'm just a servant. Well, what a great attitude. Mm-hmm. You know, we should have that attitude. There's very very little that you and I can do. Yeah. But we can do everything in Christ. Everything in Jesus. So we get to the third chapter. He's already got some enemies. And now they're going to start rebuilding the gates. And we talk about how if you wanted a city back in those days, you had to have walls around it to, be, to become a city, to become established. Whenever you have walls around the city, you have to have gates. Now, there's gates in the city of Jerusalem here. And uh, uh, there's ten different gates, and they all mean something. We won't go into all of that. And Debbie and I had the blessing of going to old Jerusalem here a couple years ago. And there it was. There's the temple, which is the, the, the foundation. And there's the walls around Jerusalem. And there's the gates. And it's just kind of awesome to see. We're, what we saw is what was rebuilt. We're reading about it being rebuilt 2,500 years ago. So it gets all the people together and tells them, we've got a job to do, everybody. And God wants to use every one of you to repair these gates. So they go to work, and what I find interesting throughout the third chapter he mentions all the different people that were in charge of this gate and then these people were in charge of that gate and when I read that this is what I got out of that I, I, it's almost like I heard God saying okay church in Denton you're in charge of the fish gate church in Grand Junction you're in charge of this gate I, 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 won't, I could almost hear God saying I got a job to do here I'm going to split it all up mm-hmm. you guys got a job to do right here somewhere else they got a job to do here we all have a gate we're supposed to build we're supposed to rebuild we all have a part to play he starts with a guy named third chapter elasha the high priest then the the high priest rolls up with his brothers the priests. so they built the sheep gate and they consecrated it and it's and they set its stores. so this guy built the sheep gate the, the first gate that they built was the sheep gate that's interesting uh, the last show, he's a high priest and he rose up and built a sheep gate now the sheep gate was the first gate to be restored it was rebuilt by the high priest and his fellow priest this was the only gate that was consecrated which was set apart as holy as it was used for bringing in sacrifices for the temple so the actually first gate they built was a special gate, and they said they set it aside. Said, "Lord, we consecrate this gate. First one we built, we use the high priest. We consecrate it because it would bring sacrifices into the sheep gate. That's they, why they call it the sheep gate. They would bring the sheep in. Jesus would come many years later, some five hundred years later, and every time Jesus went to Jerusalem, what gate do you think he went through? The dung gate? No, the sheep gate." That's the one that the king of kings always came through was the Mm -hmm. sheep gate. Now, Elisha, he didn't know that. But they knew 2,500 years ago, there's something special about this gate here. There's something special about this gate. Jesus said, I am the door. The door to the sheep. They didn't know that then, but they knew there was something special. And they consecrated it. when Jesus went to Golgotha, was condemned to death, thousands of years later he walked out to the sheep gate to Golgotha it was a shape the same gate that there was something special about that gate and that's why it must have been why that Nehemiah, for whatever the reason the intuition of the Lord we just read this quickly in a few seconds that he chose the high priest and his brother and other priests not builders, not carpenters the priests to build that gate and they consecrated to God because there was something special about that sheep gate. And uh, now, this, this Elishab, who had this tremendous opportunity and blessing to, to build this gate and to consecrate, we, we'll find later, after Nehemiah leaves for 12 years and he comes back, he finds that this guy, Elishab, actually uh, loans out this room to one of their enemies, Tobiah, one of their enemies. And in this room, there's the tithes and the grain offering and things like that, and he's given it to his enemy. This guy got corrupted in time. This guy who consecrated the sheep gate, he doesn't, he consecrated it, but he wasn't, he wasn't consecrating himself. He didn't stay faithful to the Lord, and that's a lesson in, in, in itself too, that we have to be faithful to God. God calls you to do a job, you have to be faithful. God will he will do the calling, and He will do the empowering, but you have to be faithful. It's a little warning. Any, any, any of us in this room can walk away from God. Now, I'll tell you how it happens. It doesn't happen like that. Boom. It doesn't happen like that. You don't wake up and say, you know what? I'm going to walk away from God anymore. It happens very gradually. And the way you walk with God is the same way. You just keep walking with God on a daily basis. Keep coming to church. Keep coming to your Zoom meeting. Go to camp meetings. Read your Bible. Work at it. Put effort into it. Don't be like this Elishab here who walked away from the Lord later. One of the things, and and that's way down the road here, that Elishab did, he took the money that was for the tithes. It was also money that was commanded to give for the Levites that's the priests and, and the singers and the gatekeepers and contributions to the priests. You'll find later if we have time to read all of this that the singers back in Jerusalem, they were like real important people. The singers were. And you think about that as they're rebuilding these walls, it's important to have really good carpenters. And really good singers. Does that sound kind of funny? Can you imagine your construction foreman, Jerry? He's built all kinds of stuff. Someone says, Jerry, we want you to build uh, this building and put windows in it and siding in it and all that. So Jerry says, okay, yeah. All right, what do I need here? I need a pickup truck. I need some materials. I need some carpenters. Oh, yeah, and I, I need the Amazon family because they're good singers. <laughs> Amen. Now, we would say, in the natural yeah they're great singers but what's that got to do with building the building and yet when you build the house of God singing and worship is as as important as putting brick on brick and you'll find that through the book of Nehemiah how important the singers were you remember they would go to battle put singers in front of them Mm -hmm. we don't do that today we put tanks out in front of us in Israel they put singers out in front and there's something monumental about worship, something monumental about entering into worship. This guy, Elishab, I just read this to you real quickly. So you don't have to turn up to a turn to a Nehemiah in the thirteenth chapter. He says, I was very angry, Elishab, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of his house. This Nehemiah, you didn't mess with him. <laughs> he was passionate for the Lord. And if you weren't walking right, he would come into your house, take your furniture, and throw it out the door. There is no record that anybody tried to stop him. I can just imagine that he's, uh, you know, and so angry, and so people are so fearful that they're not not going to get in his way. That's how passionate he was about serving God and doing the right thing. Remember when Jesus cleansed the temple, full of money changers? He comes in there, takes off his, his belt. Start snapping it, chased out the money changers out of the temple, overturned the money, the tables. And you can hear the money flying all over. So you you turned the house of God into a den of thieves. You know, he turned into a commercial operation. Nobody tried to stop him. There was such a, a presence with him, they were afraid of it. And you know, sometimes I don't know what it is. Sometimes you can have this Holy Spirit conviction that'll make people afraid. I don't mean go around scaring people. But I'm telling you, the Spirit of God should be with us in such a way that the devil is afraid of your presence. Mm-hmm. I don't say that boldly, yeah. but or arrogantly. But we need to walk that way. Yeah. So they start building. They start building these gates. All of these gates. Then we get over to the sixth chapter. Now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Gesheh and the Arab and the rest of the enemies heard, I had built the wall, and there was no breach left in it. I mean, they're making progress. It says, Sanballat and Geshen sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. So they're trying to compromise and trick him. So, hey, just meet us out here, here. We're going to be your buddy here. Just, just come along with us. And I sent a message to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. They're trying to get him to compromise. They're trying to trick him. They're trying to get him sidetracked. Sidetracked. It's another lesson. The enemy, in different ways, will try to get you sidetracked. He'll find a way to sidetrack you. Young people that are going to school, most of, you, most of us are all grown up and we're not as um, subject to peer pressure as young people are. But high school, college, even the workforce, there's peer pressure. The enemy, if he can't get your soul... He's going to try to compromise you and make you ineffective by getting you compromised, or so whatever it may be. Going to the party, doing this, doing that, you know. Uh, don't do those things. Don't. The enemy wants you to get compromised. He wants you to get sidetracked. You know, you have an enemy, just as Nehemiah did, and if the enemy cannot actually kill you, then he'll try to make you not fruitful. Mm-hmm. He'll start throwing things at you, to make you unfruitful, just be aware now. In the same way, Sam Ballot for the fifth time sent a servant to me with an open letter, saying, and it was written, "It's reported among you the nations, and Geshem also says it that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That, that is why you're building the wall. And according to the reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set a prophet to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem." There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear these reports. So now come, and let us take counsel together. And I said to him, saying, No such thing as you have said has been done, for you are inventing them out of your mind. For so they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and I will not. it will not be done. But now, O oh Lord, strengthen my hands. So they're constantly trying to trick him. They're lying. They're, they're offering compromise, slander, constantly slandering. They'll be slandered. Uh, and actually, is it in this chapter or the next chapter? Uh, we will move on here. What We find another spot here that even the people of Israel, they keep coming to Nehemiah. They says they did it 10 times, the family of Israel. And so this is what they said. Hey, hey, Dad and Grandpa and Uncle and those that are working, you know, that... We're kind of afraid. We're hearing all this news here that you're going to get yourself in a lot of trouble with the king because of what you're doing. So, can you please come home with us? You know, come back here. Like the, the work you're doing is not as great as you think it is. Come back and spend some time with us. This is a this project. Everything we hear about it, there's really not much to it. I don't know why you're even involved in it. Now, some of the Jews were saying that. So what was happening to Nehemiah and the, children, and the builders here, they, had, they were being resisted and had enemies from without and from within. Mm. And it's one thing to have enemies from without. And maybe the enemy's not the right word. But they also had resistance from their own families. That, hey, what you're doing is really not noble after all. I mean, if a box walks on the, on the walls, it's going to collapse. Mm. Now, I'll just say this. From time to time, you will have your own families belittle the work you're doing for God. It's okay. Just love them. Just love them. You will have people on the outside saying, what's wrong with you? You guys are nothing but a bunch of fools. Daryl mentioned this morning how God from the beginning kind of of reestablished worship in a different way in this move of the Spirit. And there was reasons for that. And we have entered into that worship that God has kind of showed us. It's not—it's not the typical way that other people do it. I won't criticize anybody else, but there'll be people that will criticize you. Hey, this work that you're doing—if a fox walks on it, the wall is going to collapse. You have no work here. Come and join us. We got fifty thousand people, you know, in this beautiful state of Texas. You can go to church on a Sunday and have 50,000 people literally there and have the preacher get up and never quote one scripture and never use the word sin and never use the word Jesus Christ and never get a scripture reference and tell you how good you should feel and how successful you're going to be and, and uh, you know, all the great things that you're going to be by positive thinking. That's the world we live in today. And they can do it without quoting a scripture. The Bible said the day will come. I should, I'm giving thanks for everybody that preaches the word of God. But the Bible says the day will come when men will heap together teachers having itching ears, wanting people to say something that makes them feel good. Tell you what, sometimes preaching against sin doesn't make you feel good. That's all right. That's called conviction. And we need conviction. So anyway, you will have resistance from without and you have resistance from within. First Tim, 6 chapter verse 10. Well, now, when I went to the house of Shema, the son of Deliah, uh, his home, he said, let us meet together in the the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple. This is all a lie. It's a trick. Okay, we're going to close the doors of the temple, Nehemiah, in the Holy of Holies. But they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. And I said, first off, a little history. In the temple of God, who could go into the holiest of holies?
0: only the high priest yeah. not
1: you and I only the high priest so now they're saying hey Nehemiah we're hearing about a, a conspiracy here and they're going to want to kill you at night, so here's what you need to do you need to go into the, this holy holding of holies here we're going to shut the door at night time where you be protected now Nehemiah knew he wasn't supposed to be in there now everything on the surface sounds good doesn't it oh yeah the the Holy of Holies. You know, we're rebuilding everything. If I go in there, I'll be protected. It was a lie. What, what, what were they trying to do? What, what were they trying to do? They're trying to get him to how to how do I say it? Compromise his testimony.
0: Yeah.
1: Everybody would say, "Hey, Nehemiah came from Persia. He's helping us rebuild these walls according to the plan." and now he's in the holiest of holies he's not even a priest he's breaking the law of moses who does he think he is he would have compromised his testimony and the lesson to me in this don't compromise your testimony everyone knows how to compromise it but be careful about your testimony don't compromise your testimony uh, verse 11, but I said, Should such a man as I run away and a man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. He says a little later, they did this so to give me a bad name in order to taunt me. They were trying to just trick him. Don't compromise your testimony. Years ago, I'll make this, I'll say this in less than one minute. I was a salesman and met these people from Ford uh, at a hotel, and then I'm supposed to take them to a foundry and I'm supposed to try to get their business. I'm trying to win their business, Ford and John Deere Foundry. And we get to the hotel, the Holiday Holiday Inn. I get there early and they give everybody a, a ticket when you check in, you know, free one drink in the bar. You know, you get a drink. And I'm supposed to entertain these guys. I got my little ticket and all the other, my customers, they show up. They all have their own home room. They all get a ticket and one free for one drink. And they all, hey, let's go get a drink. Let's get a drink. Now I'm in a I'm in a tough spot. My job is to win their business. I'm the, I'm the man, and we all got a ticket for a drink in the bar. Now I could have said, uh, you know, what's it hurt? I'll just go in there and I'll, I'll get a diet coke. You know, while they're drinking their beer, because I have to I'm supposed to entertain them. So I said a silent prayer, a quick one, Lord. What do I do? What do I do? And I felt like, don't compromise. So I said, gentlemen, you all go in there. It's okay. I don't drink. I'll just wait out here in the lobby for you. Okay, you do that. So they all went in there and got their drink. They didn't get drunk or anything. But I, I felt God telling me, don't compromise. Don't compromise your testimony. I had one salesman from Ford, or one gentleman from Ford, a young guy. I was young at that time too. I was trying to get his work. He was the hardest one to get to work. He was a tough nut to crack. I couldn't crack through him. And he's gonna wanna stop there. I'm sitting in the lobby, kind of feeling like a failure. All these guys, except for the one engineer, I'm supposed to get their business. They're all in there drinking. I'm out here by myself. That's not a good salesman, but I can't compromise pretty soon this guy this is not a joke the engineer walked in the toughest engineer that I had to work with forgot his name he said where is everybody I said well they're they are all in the bar we got a ticket for a free drink and they're all in the bar but if you want to go in, it's fine I'll wait here you see I don't drink and I'm thinking to myself this, this is kind of getting worse <laughs> the one guy that I need to convince I need his business. I'm sending him to a bar. You know? He says, oh. He says, I don't drink. I'm a Christian. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a Christian. And I don't drink either. So, the two of us sat there in the lobby while his buddies are drinking, talking about the Lord not talking about Ford business not talking about John Deere castings but talking about the Lord I didn't compromise my testimony and at the end of those two days I got his business I got it for him now what would happen I don't know what would have happened if I would have said, I'll just kind of like be trying to get Nehemiah. I'll just go in there. It'll be okay this one time. I'll drink a Diet Coke, you know. I'll listen to the jokes. I don't know what would have happened. But I you know what? I didn't I didn't compromise, and God blessed it. Amen. And that's what they were trying to do to Nehemiah. Don't compromise your testimony. So now we're in the 15th uh, chapter, 15th verse here. So the wall was finished on the 25th day. They did it in 52 days. When all of our enemies heard of it, the nations around us were afraid and felt greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So it's done. It's amazing. In 52 days, he accomplished it. Chapter 7. And when the wall had been built, I said, I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed. And I gave my brother Hanai and Haniah the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful and God-fearing than many. But the thing I was getting at that I enjoyed about the first beginning, the gates are done, so what's the first thing he does? He puts gatekeepers there and singers there. There's the singers again. People that can lead in worship. He recognizes how important it is to have people that can lead in worship. Now, it's you know, anybody can lead in worship. I want to say that too. I don't want anyone to feel diminished. But it's kind of like... anybody in this room can cook but there are also chefs Mm -hmm. that cook a little differently than the rest Mm -hmm. any of us can lead in worship and God honors it but there also are some chefs among us Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: that's not putting people on a pedestal but I think we should recognize our musical chefs Mm -hmm. and those musical chefs need to step up to the plate and give us their ministry from time to time Verse four, I won't read it. Next thing he does, he registers the people. This to me, when I read it, it's like saying, "Okay, I'm going to take a book and I'm going to write down." It's like God saying, "I'm going to write down who belongs to me." And he starts writing your name. He takes a book. Okay, I'm going. To, I'm going to register. The gates are up. Okay, I got Roland Bourne right here. Yep, he, he's one of mine. I got his name. He's registered. I got Sherry and Diane. I'm gonna write down their name here. They're registered. They are mine. It's kind of like almost telling the enemy of your soul, hey look, I got a book. I wrote down their name. These people are mine. I register them. They belong to this. That's that's um uh, honoring to think that God has looked at you and he says. I know your name talks about Malachi how he opens up a book and writes down your name makes a record all of all the good things that you've said about him I want we want to be registered in that book there's a lot of books that we don't want to have our name registered on but we want our names registered on that get to chapter 8 what do they do? they dedicate the walls they get the Bible they get the word of God out and Ezra comes and they read it from morning to night now and the people just loved it They just loaded. They didn't have an iPad up here. I got a Bible and an iPad here. Uh, my Bible several Bibles on the iPad. They came to the court and they're reading the the Old Testament books, a handful of books on the Old Testament, which you might find to be dry. From morning to night, they stand there on a platform and mention, interesting enough, verse 4, chapter 8, verse 4, first time it says, Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose first time in the bible a platform is mentioned for preaching on it's just a piece of trivia there that's the first time it's mentioned so there's a podium a platform and they read the word of god and everyone's saying amen and they're lifting up their hands and they bow their heads and they worship the lord of god with their faces to the ground and they read from the book from the law of god clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading so what's the lesson there? Fall in love with the Word of God. Read the Word of God. Mm -hmm. Fall in love with the Word of God. I skipped a chapter that was real important. I'll just recite it to you. As they're beginning to build and they're recognizing that the enemies are coming. Classic chapter. You remember what they did? They said, okay, everybody. Half of you split up. Count one, two, one, two, one, two. All the number ones, get a spear and stand at guard. All the number twos, you do the building. All the number ones, you stand ready to protect them. Everybody have a, have a weapon on your side. At the end of the chapter, there's an interesting uh, statement that says, uh, "So half of them was guarding, half is building." When they went to bed at night, it's kind of funny. It says they didn't take their clothes off; they kept their weapons on them. They didn't put their pajamas on; they kept their spear beside them. Because they were, what is what's the moral of that story? Watch and pray. Be ready. Be prepared. Be on guard. And the message of that when you're doing God's work, always be on guard because of God's enemies. Be on guard. And that's what I appreciate about that. So they, the people respond. They repent. The ninth chapter is all about repenting, which we talked about today a little bit. They make a covenant to God. They make a large promise to God. Chapter 10 is about ratifying the covenant and everyone is, and then the responsibilities of everyone doing their job as part of the covenant. You get to the 11th chapter. Uh, there is the people that God is calling. Oh, oh, yeah, this is kind of interesting. About one out of ten, now you've got a city with walls around it, you've got to put people in it. So he counted off. One out of every ten people, you get to live in the city because not everybody wants to live there. He wanted to repopulate it. When you be, begin to build a church, you got to populate it. So he put people in there, and he got to pick people to be part of that population. Some people didn't want to live in the city; uh, they didn't want to live out in the country. But so he said, "Okay, one in ten, we want you to be part of the city, like a lottery." And they began to build that city of these great men and great people, and he makes a register to the people that came back to start that city. And once again, it's like God numbering the church. And then it talks about the priests and the Levites and the singers in the 12th chapter. And then there's a dedicating in the wall in the 12th chapter, the 31st verse. And then it brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. You see, he keeps doing this. Things, things are done. Let's get some choirs together to dedicate it. Worship. Worship is so important to God. Then Nehemiah. He leaves town for 12 years because he thinks things are going well. He leaves town for 12 years and comes back in the 13th chapter and finds out the people have slipped again. They're not doing the things that they were supposed to do. And he gets angry at them. This is when he goes to uh, Tobiah, to Elishab the priest, takes his furniture, throws it out in the street, gives the money back to the priests and the singers, gets things started up again, revives them yet again to do the things that they were supposed to do in the first place. And then he gets angry at them, and then he uh, he got angry at them that the people that were had mixed marriages, and then it says, uh, uh, verse 23, 13th chapter, verse 23, uh, In those days also the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, half of the children spoke the language of Ashdod and they could not speak the language of Judah but only the language of each people. And I want to pause for, for a minute for those who aren't married. Uh, have an equal yoke. <laughs> Marry someone that speaks the same language. And when I say same language, I don't mean uh, English, the same spiritual language. Yes. Make sure your mate and the person you're dating, you're speaking the same spiritual language. These people got intermarried The children literally didn't speak the same language. But more importantly, the same spiritual language. And I confronted them. This is Nehemiah. These people had mixed marriages. I confronted them and I cursed them. Whoa. And I beat some of them. And I pulled out their hair. Whoa. (laughs) What a guy. And I confronted them. I cursed them. I don't know what he said. And I beat up some of them. And I pulled out their hair. You didn't want to see Nehemiah come around very often. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon king of Israel sin on account of such women? Among the many nations that there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him a king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even him to sin shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying former uh, foreign women so he scolds him. So once again he left 12 years had to come back and had to start a revival over again so what, what does God want us to do he doesn't want to keep sending Nehemiahs to us he wants us to understand what you're supposed to do and then do it Walk in it. Just do it. Be faithful. Uh, if we're not faithful, hopefully God will send us another Nehemiah. But what's better than that is not ha- God not having to send the Nehemiah because you're already walking the way you're supposed to walk. If you would
0: like more information about the moving of God's Spirit or resources for your spiritual life, please visit our website at www.globalmissionsinc.org.